Welcome back. Episode 36 of Cutoffs and Coffee. Your host here, James NCT from T3 Performance, as always. Have on today's episode, the Director of Performance Psychology and Team Behavioral Health Clinician of the Green Bay Packers, Dr. Chris Carr. Dr. Carr was my mental performance coach when I was playing football at Indiana University years ago. And since then, he stopped at a couple different places and eventually landed here with the Green Bay Packers. So we have an awesome conversation um, about mental skills, mental performance. We take a crazy, crazy deep dive in the world of mental performance, mental health, mental toughness. Everybody is going to get a lot of awesome information out of what Dr. Carr's got to say. And this episode, if you find yourself that you're in Green Bay and you're getting a little chilly and you need to put a crew neck on, well, luckily, Cutoffs and Coffee just came out with some crew necks. So if you need to, you know, put something over your cutoff, we call it your tarp, get your tarps out, get your crew necks. All right. It'll keep you warm while you're warming up. And uh, it's got the nice little CNC logo. Hit up CT in the DMs for those. Uh, CT, what are those running these days? We're going for 25. Crew necks for 25. We still have the T-shirts. We still have the all black hat and the camo hat. So want to support the podcast. The best way to do it is by getting some gear. If you need to find where to get that gear at, follow our individual social medias. Um, it's the real CT and JP DiBiasio. And we like to use our social medias to tease out the guests that we're going to have on the show. You can also support us by following us on Apple and Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast, and also subscribe to the YouTube channel. So with all that being said, please enjoy episode 36 with Dr. Chris Carr. Dr. Chris Carr, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being on with us. How are you this morning? Very good, Colin. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. We've been we've been trying to get in touch with you, and you were one of the guys who, from the very beginning of James and I starting this podcast, we said we wanted to get you on. So finally, uh, 36 episodes in, we're able to get you. Um, before we get going and, and hear your story and talk a little bit, and we'll talk a little bit about our connection, um, what's something that we need to know about you that we can't find from a quick Google search? Right now, the thing you'd find is I'm a grandpa. Um, just on January 29th, our daughter and son-in-law had their first little girl. And oh, congratulations. Uh, so I've always kind of said in life's journeys, you have different moments where you get a different feeling, a new feeling. It's kind of like when your child is born, there's a different love you feel than the love you have for your partner, your, your spouse. And, and when I saw my granddaughter the first time that was, I got that same feeling again. So I'm not, I don't feel that like I'm a grandpa, but mm -hmm. it's a pretty cool experience. So you ain't finding that on Google anywhere. <laughs> That's the truth. Cause I Googled you and I couldn't find <laughs> that. Um, we, we also always kind of talk about, you know, how important it is for, for coaches to build their skill set. Um, just be, just to be able to be more versatile and also be able to have the communication with the athletes when they are having a tough time building a skill. Can you remember the last skill that you taught yourself or something that you're currently working on? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I heard, I heard John Wooden, I was fortunate early in my career to have had an opportunity to meet coach Wooden when I was at a um, seminar out on the West coast and at UCLA and had a chance to, to visit with him, of course, being a Hoosier uh, by birth and growing up in Indiana, you know, you kind of connected, but I, I, 
Coach Wood made a comment on a radio interview I was listening to one time during travel in my car, and I wrote it down, and I use it a lot. He says, when you're through learning, you're through. And so to me, learning is a continual life goal. And so, for example, some recent stuff we're doing um, is exploring restricted environment, um, like float tank research and mental health, and mindfulness training. Um, I've started doing a little bit of research on biofeedback and applications of biofeedback. Um, and really because our, our culture is changing and there's so much more technology, uh, I put a question mark by the efficacy of a lot of that, but uh, I think there is a place in this culture where athletes can utilize. And so some of the things we do in our, in our programming here uh, is connected to our players' iPads. And um, so I'm curious as to seeing what's the most relevant and efficient type of utilization of mental skills that and, and what different kind of environments or tools can you incorporate? So I'm always trying to stay on cutting edge and do a lot of reading, or I should say I have a lot of books on my desk that I haven't read yet, but they're on my list. Yeah. And quite often, it's a lot of times the players will say, hey, Doc, have you ever read this book? And if I haven't, I get it. And, um, and then I have some kind of classic books I think are really good fundamental that I keep extra copies of and give it to our young players and our rookies uh, just when they when they demonstrate a degree of interest and investment that they're going to work on this then I'm going to give them the tools to be most effective so I think the, the question about learning I'm learning a little bit more about um, use of alternative interventions but in a prescriptive manner and um uh, just trying to find ways to be kind of creative to give athletes, you know, you, you may have a hammer, but if you're a master carpenter, you probably have a few hammers that you use in certain situations. Whereas I have one hammer and I'm going to try to use it no matter what nail I got to pound in, I'm going to use the same hammer all the time, probably not the most efficient way. So. Yeah, I'm a and of biofeedback and using technology and, and James is not. So we have good kind of conversations there. Um, before we get into your story, what are some of those books? Cause I have a question, you know, about resources um, for athletes who work with you, um, extra resources that you get, give them. Um, Cause we also have the question a lot, Hey man, you got anything, you know, podcasts or, or books or whatever that is. What, what are some of those resources that you're able to give your your well, some of the books that I found that are kind of good fundamental reads, and there's all kinds of books. You can walk into a Barnes and Noble, you can go on Amazon, look under sports psychology and get tons of reads. And, uh, um, but Terry Orlick um, was a Canadian sports psychologist. Terry passed in the past year or so, um, really very authentic and genuine and really kind of 20, 30 years ago was, was doing some good writing. So Terry Orlick wrote a book in Pursuit of Excellence. He also has a book called Psyching for Sport. And it was one of the kind of early entries into what is mental training. And I think Terry has a really good writing style. style. Um, there's a book called Mind Gym by Gary Mack. And Gary used to be in Arizona. Uh, and, and I knew Gary um, uh, one, the year I was at Arizona. Uh, it's a nice, basic kind of book to read. And uh, 
I'm fascinated by Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's research on flow and flow state, that optimal state of performance. And there's a book by Susan Jackson called Flow in Sport. And uh, Susan is an Australian. Uh, she did her doctoral work over here in the U.S. and did her whole dissertation research on Csikszentmihalyi's flow state phenomenon with athletes as a population. And uh, it's a really good book about kind of being in the zone. So those are a couple standbys that I'd encourage, uh, you know, someone who's kind of interested in this area. There are tons of reads. My mental training manual that I use with high school athletes, with you at Indiana, here in the Packers is 13 pages. Uh, I'm a believer that there's a foundation set of skills that you must practice and adhere to. And off of that comes the um, kind of additional skill set. But if you're not doing the fundamentals, um, it's difficult to add all the, there's a lot of sizzle, but no steak sometimes in my realm. And, um, and so I think having just some basic foundational work and I'm surprised how our rookies and, and players that approach and we talk about it and they come in at this level, they, they maybe have experimented with mental training, but they really want to work on it. And they're kind of shocked at, at the simplicity of starting practice. And when I prescribe those tools, it's I want to see how motivated you are to make a change. If I give you 50 different things, you can be overwhelmed and kind of pick and choose and never make a solid commitment to any of it. And how are you going to really develop this part of the mind, which is so complex and so uh, phenomenally unknown? And uh, but we're going to do it with these little simple exercises. It takes time. Yeah, that's a, that. Tons of great points that I know we both want to dive into. Um, we want to hear your background, so just so we can kind of catch people up where where you're at and, and now kind of how obviously like you had mentioned we um being an indiana guy muncie is that right being a yeah, muncie absolutely. guy yeah right and so we you know we um i i love having indiana guys on being a being indianapolis carmel guy um so talk us through your background through your college football experience and then through now into your professional experience and then we'll kind of get back into talking about um you know those foundational skills that you had you had just mentioned well, it, the earth was still cooling when I started playing sports and, you know, we did actually have real helmets, although I, I, I'd hate to share the helmet I wore in high school and college to, you know, concussion experts now, but, um, you know, I was an undersized kid. I was not a big kid. I actually participated in sports when they used to cut athletes. So I remember seventh and eighth grade baseball. I was each year, the, one of the last three kids that was cut. And there wasn't other baseball. When you were cut from the middle school team, you didn't play baseball anywhere else. We didn't have this explosion of youth sports leagues. Um, basketball, you know, Indiana's a big basketball, but I was this undersized kid. Um, I got cut from basketball, then I go to wrestling. Then I try basketball again, get cut, go to wrestling again. Um, so in high school, I did uh, wrestling and football. But I was a 98-pound wrestler my freshman year in high school. And then I, I wrestled 167 my senior year. So there weren't many colleges recruiting 5, 10, 165-pound offensive linemen. So my options were 
what did I want to do? And I still love the game. And I felt like as a late bloomer, uh, I wanted the opportunity to continue playing. I knew I was going to continue to grow. My dad was a uh, 6'3", 240-pound, two-sport athlete in college. Uh, my dad's in the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame as an official. He passed away in 1994 of a heart attack. I think he's up there somewhere very proud of the career I've had. Um, but my dad um, was always encouraging, even when those times that I was getting cut, to stay focused, to stay committed. So he never discouraged me from pursuing, you know, the next level. So uh, like a lot of high school kids at that time, you'd get letters from small colleges in Indiana. Well, Wabash College was where my father had attended college, small liberal arts school, all-male school in West Central Indiana. And uh, my senior year in high school, Wabash played in the Division Three National Championship game in uh, the Stag Bowl uh, down in Alabama and for the National Championship. So they had started to have a really good program. And so when I got my letter from Wabash and knowing the kind of academic background I would have, and the fact that, you know, hey, if you want to play, come play. There wasn't like recruiting was just bodies, right? And so I went to Wabash knowing I'd get a good education. Um, but long story short, I ended up kind of growing once I got to college. I started gaining weight, introduced to weightlifting a little bit, and uh, started two years as an offensive guard and backup center. So I played guard and kind of knew the first three interior positions pretty well, but started at the guard spot and played for a team that in four years had three losses. Um, we were a pretty good football program. And uh, in fact, one of my classmates and teammates was a third tight end picked in the NFL draft in 1982, which was a fun experience to Pete Metzlars who ended up playing 16 years in the NFL starting tight end on all four of the Buffalo Bills, Super Bowls teams, oh. Pete Metzlar's out of Little Wabash College, you know, so it was fun being in a division three school where we had that kind of um, athletic uh, experience. Our head coach ended up going on and coaching at the division one level, was on John Gruden's staff in Tampa Bay when they won the Super Bowl, um, was a quarterback's coach at Michigan when I was working at Ohio State, so uh, it's fun to keep those football connections. And then uh, psychology major in undergrad, it was my fourth major. I think I chose psychology in like last part of my sophomore year. And I picked it as a field because I liked the classes. I never thought about being a psychologist. So hand, hand to God, I would never have said I was going to be a psychologist when I drove away from Wabash after graduation. Never even entered my mind. And so the short story is I didn't want to wear a suit and tie. I didn't want to sell insurance. Um, so I kind of felt like, what could I be good at? And I had been involved in FCA. I'd been a YMCA camp counselor all through high school. Um, so counseling psychology kind of seemed like an interest to me. But then I went back to Muncie and then uh, went to graduate school at Ball State to do a master's degree in counseling psych and had the opportunity to be a graduate assistant football coach. And at one point in my career, my plan was to be either a college football coach or a high school coach and guidance counselor. And that's why I chose counseling psychology. Again, with not any goal at that time to become a psychologist. 
so it, it's it's a later part of my journey um that i think in my master's level it was kind of like that was in the day when ga's cut film strips i mean you literally got canisters of film and every ga during the season would have to go from western michigan or eastern michigan or bowling green and we'd have to drive to indianapolis after the game take these cans of film to this film place and hang out for six hours till they made copies i mean it was like now if coach finishes a game and by the time they walk their office everything's cut up and downloaded on their computers just so different and then sunday the ga's job was to cut and cut all the film strips i mean it was and that's what i did and it was mind-numbing and boring I understood the reason, but I didn't get to coach as much as I wanted to coach. And I think in hindsight, that was part of my destiny. And, uh, and so the counseling field was real fun for me. And um, I started kind of thinking about what I wanted to do. And I decided to go work. Uh, I actually had applied for my PhD at the end of my master's, but I did really crappy on uh, the GREs. And uh, I, I still need to write them a letter and tell them that they were wrong about my right, right. potential success. But um, standardized tests do have that. There are people at the end of the continuum. Um, and so I went and worked for four years. And uh, when I made the decision to go work and I ended up working in substance abuse um, I, because I had done a practicum at the end of my master's in an inpatient addictions unit. And I found that work really challenging and uh, patients were really uh, challenging and sometimes difficult. And the disease of addiction is really um, quite dynamic. So I, I kind of, as a therapist, I found that field fascinating. So I ended up doing that for a few years and then sports psychology eventually started floating in front of me. And so literally it was in my mid twenties when I started thinking I was out working uh, and that's when the decision to go back for my PhD all began. And then a long journey through professional sports from there, college, yeah. professional. My, my whole philosophy was at that time, you knew that orthopedic surgeons were doing sports medicine residencies and training to work with athletes primary care physicians or internal medicine physicians were doing sports medicine fellowships. In other words, in the medical field, they were identifying athletes and sports as a unique culture. It's a different group. And athletes are a little bit different than the general population in terms of physical injury and those types of things or training demands. And so I started reading some books and, um, and I started thinking about becoming a psychologist. And I felt like if I was gonna impact the field, and ever common, let me put a caveat. There is no such thing as a sports psychologist. You are either a licensed psychologist in the state where you practice, which means you got a PhD in clinical counseling or school psychology. In every 50 states, there's state law that says you cannot call yourself a psychologist unless you're licensed. But if you call yourself a sports psychologist and you have no competency or training in the field of sports psychology, then potentially you're practicing out of your competency, which is written in the state laws regarding the practice of psychology, 
we've kind of navigated. It's become kind of a guru dominated field and people don't ask the questions about training. So I think part of my academic preparation was if I was going to practice, if I wanted to do something in sports psychology, I better get the combination. So I went back to do my PhD in counseling psychology, but I did my minor in sports psychology. And I'd been the first doctoral student in that program in its history to really kind of specify that type of a, a minor. And uh, I did that at Ball State and I had a phenomenal uh, doctoral committee that were very supportive. And they loved the idea that a counseling psychologist could go work in the sports world and impact athletes as a specific population as a psychologist. And, um, and I had read some books and there were folks like Bruce Ogilvie and Jerry May and Dr. Shane Murphy, who got hired at the US Olympic Committee in 1986 as their first ever psychologist. Um, and it was kind of cutting edge. So there weren't jobs out there, but I felt like if I was gonna make this commitment, my wife and I were gonna go back and leave you know, full-time paying salary to go back and get my PhD, I was going to create the path. And so I went back to Ball State and I didn't, doing your PhD was a four-year journey. The third year of my fourth years, I got to go to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs and work as a research assistant in sports psychology. Did my dissertation research. It was phenomenal because I worked with the athletes that were in residence. I worked with national teams. And I said, yeah, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm supposed to do. And so I uh, finished my PhD, landed in Pullman, Washington as a psychologist for their athletic department. And uh, at that time, I think I was one of four or five individuals in the entire country that was a full-time psychologist embedded in a collegiate athletics department. And um, and then from there, it's been quite the journey. But uh, yeah, it, you know, I look back and, and I find students today that are 26, 27, and they're finishing their degrees. They've never not been in school. And uh, they ask a lot, you know, well, how did you get into this field? And how did you get all these experiences? And to this day, I'm convinced that four years I worked between my master's and my PhD and the experience I gained, a lot of people don't want to spend that experience. And to me, it's a little disrespectful for the elite athlete population they want to serve to not themselves expect to get experience and training and really kind of get some boots on the ground work before they, they enter into you know, this really unique and elite level of athletics. Now, you know, as you're getting into this field, um, it, it's, it's being created as you're kind of creating your own path, right? So if we, if we kind of look at, you know, the modern day, just like you said, we could have a student that's in school from the time that, you know, they're enrolled in kindergarten all the way till they finish their PhD. And then they're going to start, you know, in theory, practicing sports psychology with, with students without getting that, you know, boots on the ground experience. Um, you know, having having walked the walk in, in your path, especially, was there any moments in your path as you're either, you know, practicing as a counselor in substance abuse or, or starting to work with sports performance in, in sports psychology specifically that kind of shifted how you um, view your either either your role as a, as a psychologist or uh, the role of the sports uh, performance, mental performance as a field um, that kind of created you know the path that you're on today 
Um, were there any paradigm shifting moments in that early couple years? There's there's a couple things, James, that that I consider kind of benchmarks for me. Um, you know, being an old offensive lineman, I think there's a mentality of we're not in it for the glamour like wide receivers and <laughs> mm -hmm. experience. Um, yeah. quarterbacks and running. No, it's it, that's totally uh, temporal and not relevant. But you know, as an yeah. offensive lineman, you just you you did the grunt work and the tailback and the receivers and the quarterbacks got the glory, right? That was kind of the old way. And that was okay. That fit my style pretty well. Um, one of those moments was when I was in addictions work and it was early and I was working in an inpatient facility and had uh, in my specific group, a really difficult individual who had had multiple inpatient treatments, had not maintained sobriety over any length of period. Um, but I worked really hard with this guy and uh, implemented some therapeutic interventions and, and uh, this individual graduated our program, came back uh, for his 90 day token, meaning he had 90 days of sobriety, which for many, many years had been his longest period of sobriety. And I remember at a staff meeting kind of thumping my chest and feeling like, you know, I was the difference. And I'm not denying that there's an impact that a clinician or a physician or a strength coach makes on their clients. But I had uh, one of the older therapists kind of pull me aside and in a very kind and firm manner say, if you're gonna take credit for everyone that gets sober, you've gotta take credit for everyone that relapses. Mm. And boy, that hit me right between the eyes because as I kind of ventured into this field of sports psychology, I see a lot of folks who kind of promote themselves on the back of successful teams and athletes while they're taking checks from teams and athletes who aren't very successful. And I don't think you can do it both ways. Um, that's why I've had very little marketing, even in my career where I had a business, so to speak, I didn't do much marketing because I think I'm very confident in who I am and what I do, but it's the athlete that's ultimately going to make the choice and the decision uh, about their success that hit me very impactfully that I just have to be the best I can be and allow the credit to go to the individuals who utilize me as a resource, utilize the tools as a resource. Um, I get it. It's a business for folks. I get it. There's a marketing piece. I get it, but that just doesn't fit me. Um, that's one shift for sure, because then it helps me become really good at what I do rather than focus too much on who I'm working with or what I'm doing. That's one big piece for me. I think the second one really was when I started to explore this field of sports psychology and found that either most people calling themselves sports psychologists were either A, not psychologists. It didn't mean they didn't have training. Sports psychology is an academic discipline is really in kinesiology and physical education. I mean, if you're at an undergraduate and you're looking for a sports psych class, you're probably not going to find it in the psychology department. It's really kind of had ownership within physical education, which is if you study the history of it. And I've taught sports psychology at the undergraduate and graduate level. So, you know, having an academic understanding of it. But that doesn't mean you're a psychologist because you have a PhD in sports psychology. 
But then there are psychologists who think that because they coach their kids' t-ball team, they can practice sports psychology. They don't have that, that competency base, that training, that education, that supervision. And I think people so badly want to engage in sports or be identified with elite sports, um, they shortchange their training and their background. And then what happens is we get silos. Well, he just deals with mental illness or he just deals with mental disorders or she just deals with mental training. Um, every athlete I've ever seen is a human being. Every athlete I've ever worked with has family and they have emotional and mental and behavioral health that's on a spectrum continuum. At one end is very elite, highly functioning, making good decisions, emotional balance, emotional maturity, making good decisions in life, having healthy relationships. And at the other end of the continuum is the dangerous and debilitating mental disorders, suicidality, psychotic episodes, dissociative disorder. But there's on that continuum, right? So to me as a psychologist working in a population of athletes, I need to understand that whole psychological health continuum. And that's where really for me, getting the training in sports psychology, like classes like sports psychology, motor learning, exercise physiology, sociology of sport. I did an independent study on the psychology of injury with athletes. Um, in our culture here, I'm part of their rehab, period. Not optional, but part of the rehab process because there's just too much data that indicates there's an emotional and a mental component to injury and rehabilitation that oftentimes is not attended to. And so for me, being able to kind of look at myself as a psychologist that has this large toolbox, you know, I have a good reference set with the training and experiences I've had. And then just through the experiences I've had, as I said, when I started Washington state, there weren't athletic departments were not hiring mental health people in-house. They were sending it out to counseling centers. They were sending it out to private practice. It wasn't integrated. And what I used to say to athletic directors is, well, you have an athletic training staff. Why don't you send the athletes to the student health center to get their ankles wrapped? If that's the model, you're, well, why would we bring athletic training in-house? Strength coaches, every campus has a student recreation center. Send your athletes over to the student rec center. Work with one of those master's level exercise physiology students. No, they have whole strength staffs. So I think we're seeing a continuum in sports science and in the development that psychology is now coming on board. And, and a classic example is when I was at Ohio State University from 95 to 2000, I was the one psychologist for the entire athletic department. That was 36 athletic teams and 1,100 student athletes. And there was one of me. Now I did have resources and I created a network of referrals and then created a, uh, a postdoctoral fellowship that was half time to help me. But now Ohio State has four or five full-time staff, licensed mental health staff as their sports psych department. So all the power five conferences have this as a resource. And many of them, I know my colleague at USC out in LA, they have 10 identified staff members in their sports psychology program for USC athletics. That's including graduate students, full-time staff. So we're seeing that growth. And I think we're starting to see the growth a little bit in professional sports now. It's always kind of been on the front end for me. I've always kind of been like each job I've gone to is I've been the first one to do it. Um, but that's why I've got a quote actually here in my above my desk from the movie Moneyball. 
the first one through the wall always gets bloody. And the idea is that there's lots of challenges when you're kind of the first one doing it because you're dealing with stigma, you're dealing with people's belief systems about, well, they're just not mentally tough and they don't understand psychological health and they don't understand the role. They don't understand that I'm not a motivational speaker. In fact, I don't believe in that because my approach is if you're an elite athletic team and you need a motivational speaker, the underlying message is you don't have internal drive, internal motivation to be self-directed, to be self-motivated. Therefore, you're not likely to have an elite level of competition. But it's a, but it's a big business. Um, I see myself more as a teacher, psychologist, therapist. And uh, in this organization, that's what they wanted me to come in and build. So many strong points there. Um, and I think you're the, the perfect person, Doc, to kind of define this and clarify this for us. But a lot of times we see, and you had mentioned mental toughness, mental performance. Um, what, what are the big differences for us, for the coaches and for the consumers Right. And the people listening between when we talk about mental performance and we talk about mental toughness and we talk about mental health, yeah. is that kind of the spectrum that, that you were talking about? Or how, how can we kind of identify the, the three different ones? Well, mental toughness, you know, for me, when I was a college athlete, mental toughness meant you could endure three hour practice without water. You know, if you needed water, you weren't mentally tough. No, we were dehydrated. That's why we needed water. You know, it's there was an old thing about like playing when your finger goes sideways and you grab it and pull it back and throw a buddy tape on it, you're mentally tough. Notwithstanding the fact you might have torn ligaments, but who gave a crap? Because, you know, you're either tough or not tough. Right. And they're very projected kind of terms. Well, Graham Jones is a uh, sports psych researcher at, you know, in, in, in England at Loughborough University, and they started to operationally define what is mental toughness. And so there's been some academic work, and there's a disconnect in our field. The academic field, I think, could really inform and educate, but the problem is that sports is so proprietarial and protected that can't really do the research. But I see academic departments of big schools thinking, why can't you have collaborative relationship to find the research? Back to your point, to me, there isn't a mental toughness quotient. There are trait factor measures, but those are self-report. What athlete's going to report themselves as anything less than mentally tough? What athlete's going to report themselves as anything less than mentally focused? But it's demonstrated over time. Sean McCann is a senior psychologist at the U.S. Olympic Committee. He's been a colleague, friend of mine for many, many, many years. And at one of the Olympics, he's been to like every Olympic game since 1992 or something. Um, Sean was interviewed on the Today Show or something. And they asked him, and this is my example to your question, Colin. They said, well, when you're at the Olympics, are you working with athletes mostly on performance issues or are you working mostly with like mental health stuff? And he said at the Olympics, everything is about performance. That's our mantra here. So Dr. Carr, who's a director of performance psychology, and that's a very specific title for the Packers, is everything in these players' lives is about performance. Their family, their relationships, 
injury issues, uh, you know, role in their development as a NFL football player, everything is about performance. I think for many years that that dichotomy was split out because folks who didn't have mental health training wanted to say, well, I just deal with mental training and mental, but you're still dealing with cognitive processing. You're still dealing with emotional management. You're doing the same things that psychologists as a discipline are trained to deal with. Um, and I think it's just been semantics and grammar, and, you know. So for me, it's an individual that has a psychological process, including emotional management, cognitive management, behavioral management, those elements of psychology. So we don't differentiate. We do talk a lot about mental health and it is from a performance standpoint because the research is very clear. The mentally healthier you are, the better you're going to perform out on the field. And yeah, we have athletes who are wonderfully talented athletes. Um, I remember one of, when I was at the Olympic Training Center, um, one of the first presentations I did um, was just on mental training to a, a national team. I won't say the sport, but when I finished um, doing the talk and in that time, you know, you still had little bit of doubt and had a little bit of stigma and I have one of the, the team members say when I was asking for questions said well what would you say to someone like me who has like three world records and two world championships and I've never done any of this stuff and I said what would I say to you and I said okay well number one I'd say you probably have done this stuff you just didn't call it what I called it <laughs> And they kind of smiled. And then I said, and second of all, it tells me you were satisfied with just those three world championships and two world records. And I, and I wonder how many more you would have had if you did do this stuff. And when you talk to athletes, and one of the things that I'll do with teams that I speak with is, for example, I'll say, how much of your game from zero to 100% is mental? Well, obviously, when you're talking youth football the kids have all different kinds of physical abilities and talent right but as you move up the developmental curve to get to the most elite level and i've been to the olympics i've been at high division one athletics i've worked with major league baseball i worked 13 years in the nba i worked in mls for four years and then now in the nfl this is the top level of sport for that specific sport so most of the athletes at that level are going to tell you 90% or more of my sport is mental. Second question I ask is, of all the mistakes you make playing the game, what percent of your mistakes are mental mistakes? Meaning you lost focus, you got too anxious, too nervous, or maybe you were flat, or you had self-doubt. You had something in your head that you weren't aware of that was impacting that moment. And most elite athletes that I speak with will say, well, basically all of my mistakes. All are of them, mistakes. right. Yeah. So the third question I ask them is, if your sport is 90% mental and your mistakes are mostly all mental, then of the hours and hours and hours you spend training for your sport, what percent do you spend doing mental training? You just identified it's mental. So how are you training for that? And... Uh, you know, that's, it's interesting because it kind of catches them. And then I tell athletes, if you work with Dr. Carr 
and you're committed to doing mental training, you're going to spend about 25 to 35 minutes a day doing it. I mean, I'm talking brass tacks, time commitment to doing mental training. 25 to 35 minutes a day. We're not talking hours. We're talking less than an hour. I said, if you could do something different than you've ever done with mental training, and it helps you make one less mental mistake, every practice or game you play from this point forward, how many of you would believe it's worth it? Every hand goes up. And then I say, then why am I only going to see about half of you? Where's the difference that people make? And I think it's because we live in a, a different society where we get information and things given to us quickly, we expect a, a quick result. But I guarantee you, I couldn't go into a strength coach. I couldn't go to either one of you guys and say, look, I want to kind of get more tone. I think I'd like to get my cardiovascular fitness. I'd like to do a 5K, kind of do some training. And you ain't going to fix it in one session. You're going to give me a plan. There's going to be teaching. There's going to be follow-up. And there has to be commitment from my end to make that happen, correct? It's no different with your mental training. It's just a little bit harder to wow. see. So that's kind of a, a philosophy that ties to your point, Colin, all of that together. And so the cool part being here in this office is when a player comes in and says, Doc, is it okay for me to talk about like family stuff? I was like, absolutely. I said, does it impact you as a man? Yes. Could that impact impact how you perform? Yeah. Okay. Then it's then it's game. Now, if I'm not trained in psychology and I wander into that world, then are you really practicing what you're trained to practice? And you guys know this. You know you have certification, National Strength Coaches Association (ACSM). You have certifications, and you have folks out there that have no certification. They have maybe no training or supervision. Uh, but that happens a lot in my domain, in my field, because it falls under that motivational stuff. And so, you know, I have kind of a theoretical approach. Um, I, I keep my own journal and my own notes. And when I get retired and then maybe I'll write my own book, but uh, I just have a belief system that seems to endear me to work uh, with these elite athletes. And I think they appreciate <clears throat> that we have a collaborative relationship working together. There, there's a lot to unpack, uh, you know, with what we just talked about, you know, and I want to bring up a couple things thinking about like tying it back into the youth sports and how you were, you told a story about how, when you were growing up, if you got cut, you got cut. But now if you um, get cut from one team, you'll just try out for a different travel team over here. You'll pick up a team over here. Um, and then your parents will get you a mental skills coach because um, you can't handle handle that. Um, you know, where where are we getting lost kind of in in our sports world in the evolution with what you see at the highest level of things that, you know, these are resources these athletes need. Um, and then where are we kind of losing ourselves along the process to, you know, having athletes who who need that mental skills coach or who athletes who are just like growing up through their life experiences, they're 10, 11, 12, 13, dealing with losing and dealing with, um, you know, a little bit of adversity as, as they're beginning their journey in sports. Yeah. That's a loaded question, right? Cause there's a lot of <laughs> yeah. different unpacking pieces of that. Um, youth sports has changed so much. It's become a business. 
um, you know, a big business. And I think about being in Muncie, Indiana and playing fifth and sixth grade baseball. Um, <laughs> you know, my team was local 287, you know, it was sponsored by an auto workers union. Uh, Muncie used to have uh, Delco and all these, and uh, Borg Warner and all these, you know, so, and there was Coca-Cola and then there was, I think Meeks Mortuary was a, a mortuary in town that sponsored a team. And that was kind of the extent of the involvement. And then the coaches were basically men who loved the sport and saw themselves as teachers. Now it's a business. Um, but in all the research in youth sports, they haven't really moved too far away from the fact that the number one reason kids stay involved in sports is fun. And the number one reason why they leave sports is because it's not fun. Right. And you think about it, um, you know, in our cognitive development, we really don't develop that third person perspective. Like, can't you see what you're doing? Well, you really can't till you're about 12 years old, 11, 12 years old. So we take eight year olds and try to teach them about team building and, and they can't make that connection, not because they don't care, not because they're unable. It's just, they're, they're just cognitively not there. Um, and I think we've kind of, I learned a lot by being cut. I didn't like it. I didn't feel good about myself. You had to go to school the next day and deal with people and you knew you had been cut. So, it, but you learned about how to overcome that, right? And now if I just pull a kid and say, well, you're not gonna make that team. So I'm gonna create my own team or go put you on the team with my buddy. Then did I really make it because I have the abilities and talents to make it? And I think there's a disconnect and it becomes more about social relationships instead of skill development talent that's identified early often gets surrounded by so many um, layers of individuals and that type of thing and, and the one thing i've seen for years at the elite level is that it, sometimes it it really does uh, kind of handcuff them when they have challenges that they've never experienced and they don't really have the emotional intelligence or the emotional maturity to know how to manage that something that they probably should have learned when they were younger and learned that you keep moving forward and you keep establishing goals and you get over it. Um, I, I think Jim Thompson, who's the uh, uh, president of, the, I think it's called the Positive Coaching Alliance, uh, is a nice organization that's done a lot of good training. And I think there are entities out there that are trying to do it the right way. And I would, I would guarantee you that 80 to 90% of adults involved in new sports want to create sports as a very positive vehicle for kids. Um, but unfortunately, there's this kind of over competitive nature that I think sometimes disrupts and it sometimes um, kind of clouds what people view uh, success as being. And um, we have we have varying, a variety of societal labels on what failure is. And uh, I consider my athletics career, even though it ended with a knee injury and it was division three football. Yeah, I'm, I, I think I maximized my abilities that I had. And at that level, I'm very proud of that accomplishment and that achievement. But I think other people are doing too much comparison and I think kids have a hard time developing self-esteem and developing self-concept if they're constantly being compared to others. And I think that happens a little bit. Now, I love speaking to youth sport coaches. I've done lots of workshops on 
coaching youth sport participants, creating fun, creating fitness dynamics, creating, you know, working together and those kinds of societal dynamics, um, skill development. Yeah, those are important parts of the experience. But when we lose the fun, I think you lose a lot of good kids. And I think sports specialization to a certain part. We don't see a lot of multi-sport athletes. I know um, oftentimes in professional sports, you love to, to have a player uh, come into your building that's had multiple sports because they've learned how to find that balance. And, um, and we've kind of taken that away a little bit. Now, this is coming from the, the father of a collegiate Division One athlete where my daughter did gymnastics for four years in college. And, um, you know, at some point when she was early age, we tried to get her involved in everything camps and different things but she fell in love with that sport at a certain age you really have to individualize it just for the developmental skill piece but it was her love so um unfortunately for her it, it panned out to a wonderful experience and she's coaching it now so she can take those experiences as a coach with the, with the young girls she, she coaches yeah she she had fun and she enjoyed it and like you mentioned the the number one reason that kids play sports and kind of in our realm the number one reason that they come back to the weight room seems to be if they're if they're having fun or if they're not having fun we don't see them as often I, i've got right. a question for you doc that i've kind of been meditating on for a while and uh, so excuse me if it doesn't come out as simply and as easy as i would like it to but a big focus of mine and and ours at, at the gym is trying to make the environment our, our mental performance coach calls it um um, psychologically safe, right? Where athletes feel comfortable coming in. We want our athletes to, to feel comfortable failing, not always feeling like they have to perform for their performance coaches. Something James says all the time. Um, are there maybe KPIs or are there measurements that would help us as coaches be able to make sure our athletes are psychologically comfortable in the situation when they're with us training? Um, yeah, to my knowledge, I don't know of any specific measures. I would encourage you to check out Michigan State University has an institute for youth sport. And uh, Dan Gould, Dr. Dan Gould, who's, um, I think Dan's close to retiring, but Dan is a, a very respected colleague and friend of mine, kind of came up through that PE, uh, Kinesis world. But Dan, um, was like the uh, chairperson of the sports psych uh, program at Michigan State, but their focus has been on youth sports. So if you look up Institute for Youth Sport, Michigan State University, I know they've done a lot of things with the Michigan State High School Athletics Association, um, and it would be good academically sound measures. Um, you know, to me, psychological safety is about an individual that feels that the person working with them, the adult working with them is working with them on the same goals and has the same objectives and is doing it in encouraging, supportive and boundaries with boundaries uh, way. And uh, they're an adjunct, an asset to that young athlete's development. Now, the core piece of their development is their nuclear family their family of origin and obviously that can impact positively and negatively the the athlete's experience but when they come into your gym and they come in to start working to have clear expectations 
to praise and reinforce individual accomplishment and individual attainment goals, even though that 17 year old just benched 230 for the first time and the kid next to him at 16 is benching 260, there's never a comparison between the two because they're two individuals. But what they're doing is finding their own goals and that results in taking the time to do process goal setting, to individualize the goals that you work on. And you can challenge but to me, I get asked this question like, you know, I had a period of time, and this has been 20 years ago, uh, I actually had a, a D1 football coach reach out to me about would I have interest in being an offensive line coach? And, you know, I kind of, I thought it was a joke. And they said, no, you would, you can learn the X's and O's. You played the game and you, you, you coached at a level and it wouldn't take you long to get caught up on that. But what you do know is the psychology of that position and that group. It was intriguing. And I remember my wife saying, well, I said, I think I'd be pretty loud, but I'd be loud in a good way. But the one thing that I would be confrontational about is lack of effort. Because effort is within the control of the individual. Now, their technique may not be perfect. You know, their skill set may not be ideal. I'm not going to criticize an individual that doesn't have the skill set. But if I get if I'm a good teacher, I'm giving them tools to develop that skill. But then it's their effort that they're going to measure. And I think we can be encouraging. I, you know, I've had coaches in the past, you know, that realize, God, when I watch myself on film, I only blow the whistle to yell and scream. I never blow the whistle to praise and reinforce. And it was like that self-awareness. Um, is part of your growth. I've, I've worked with strength coaches before. I said, if you want to know what you're like in the weight room, set up a camera sometime or have someone film you without you knowing it. Then you get a good measure of kind of what your dynamic and your energy is like. And they're kind of like, well, that'd be weird. It's like when I was being trained as a therapist, as a counselor in my master's and my doctoral program, all of my practicum classes where I saw live clients, meaning people from the community, Every single one of my sessions was videotaped or audio taped, every single one. So for me, being trained as a psychologist, which is very relationship and therapeutically bound, I needed to have that modeling and I needed to have that feedback to kind of see how I was in interaction with my clients. And it was awesome. Um, so I think for coaches, do we create a, an environment where people feel motivation? And if their motivation is low, they can tap into something to bring it up, but the effort is going to be accountable to them. It's not Colin's job or James's job to push effort into you. It's their job to create the environment where a motivated individual is going to be successful. And yeah, it's tough when a 16-year-old comes in. The only reason they're coming there is because dad's dropping them off. And it's okay to say, hey, I get it. Sometimes mom and dad want you to get stronger and you're not sure about it, but you're here. So what can I do to help you? What would you like to accomplish and have them take ownership in it at 15, 16, 17, man, if they get ownership, I think you see that effort change because now they're not self-sabotaging. And uh, it, the, the dynamics are just complex in any kind of training facility and, and I worked at St. Vincent Sports Performance for in Indianapolis for 16 almost 16 years so I worked with strength coaches that brought in players for the NFL draft 
combine preparation or college athletes that came in. That was my environment with the athletic trainers, the physical therapists, the sports med docs and nutritionists. So it's always been an integrated piece uh, for me. And, um, and, and for you guys in a, in a young environment, uh, psychological safety means to me that when a kid walks in the building, their goal today is to get better compared to nobody else but themselves. Excellent. Excellent. I, um, I'm looking on here. I've, I've so many questions. This was the fastest hour I think of any, any podcast we've done. So, uh, I'm going to try to hit on, hit on a couple things, um, again, to, to be respectful of your time. You, you had mentioned the psychology of returning to play after an injury. And I know, um, if you want further context on this, there's a YouTube video that, um, Dr. Carr had put out about this topic, but I think this seems to be lost for some reason, um, at least in the, in the strength industry where athletes come back from an injury, but they never do any training for their, their brain when it comes to connecting the injury with performance. And that's something again, James and I talk about all the time, again, with, with psychological safety, we want to make sure I have a good time make sure they're, they're laughing and able to perform and, enjoy the setting but also understand that hey you've got to make sure that you are not concerned when you run back out on the field that your ankle is going to go again or that your hamstring or your knee is going to go again um can you kind of give us just a couple of a couple of points there on um the importance of understanding the psychology of of return to play from an injury um for you know for athletes and, and for our coaches to hear well it's an integrated process right and and it takes time to become integrated and be part of a process. As I say to our athletic training staff, I wrapped my daughter's ankles when she was a JO level gymnast. That doesn't make me an athletic trainer. I knew how to put ice on something that was sore. That doesn't make me an athletic trainer. I know how to do um, certain lifts and certain exercises. It doesn't make me a strength coach. I think psychology, that's where a lot of folks read a couple articles and now they're going to implement that. And I think that's just the nature of stigma and it's the nature of an evolving field. So to say that, first of all, any, to me, any successful rehab program has a licensed mental health psychologist, someone involved in their care. Now at this very elite level of performance, as I mentioned, it is an integral and um, kind of required component because we do know this based on the literature. When an athlete has a significant injury, they're gonna go through a grieving process. They're going to grieve. And they're gonna need emotional support. They're gonna need psychological support to manage that grief in a positive way. Because when an athlete is grieving the loss of a season or a potential loss of career, it freaks everybody else out. Because a family that's attached to that career is, may stay in a state of denial longer than the athletes in that state of denial. So they're not going to always be the best resource to listen to the athlete's concerns. And when you're a rehab specialist that's based on kind of black and white established goals, it's harder to live in that world of gray, which is the emotional experience of the athlete. So understanding the grieving process and letting the athlete be there is an important part of what I do. We know that when athletes get close to return to play and they're making progress and they're their exercise is better, they're running full, let's say ACL, now they're running, they're cutting, they have great quad strength, they have great flexibility, scans are showing a stable and solid knee, 
everything looks good. They're meeting all their, they're petrified because athletes have two fears when they come back from injury. Number one, am I going to re-injure? And number two, am I going to be as good as I was? Well, that's where I start working with athletes early using mental imagery, mindfulness training to lower that anxiety. That's a part of their, that's a part of their return to play. It's part of the rehabilitation. I don't know if any of you have had surgery, but it's a little scary to be laying under a sheet knowing you're going to go to sleep in a hospital. And I think we sometimes minimize that impact that, you know, that's an actual kind of traumatic event if you're not used to doing that. And the pain management piece, there's so many pieces of an injury process. And again, depending whether it's surgical, non-surgical, how much rehab, you know, Every case is unique, but the one thing we do is we surround them with psychological intervention and process so that when they're going through their injury rehab and they're going through the recovery and they have a bad day, they have a mental process of how they're managing that and normalizing that. And um, you got to self-monitor, you got to self-check if you're in a care providing role, if you're in a class and you're in a, a strength coach and you're in a facility and you just had a bunch of kids be a pain in the ass and you're a little pissed about what they didn't do and then you're doing rehab the next person and they're hypersensitive because maybe their docs were pro was they, they weren't progressing as much or they weren't getting their range of motion to where they were they're a little sensitive then they sense your frustration which has nothing to do with them but then they're feeling now like they're not pleasing you there's so many different dynamics and every situation has a psychological, emotional, and a mental component to it. And so part of my role as a psychologist who works with athletes is to help to unpack that and to kind of understand what that's about. We know that visualization is a wonderful intervention to help athletes not only modulate the process of rehabilitation and early recovery, but be able for them to watch film and then to internalize it so they can begin to move and feel their body do the things that they know how to do but they just haven't done in a while and so i'll do implemented kind of prescriptive exercises in terms of imagery and we do some scripts and we do some things that and the whole goal of that is to engage the confidence level and to manage the anxiety level so that when they come out the metaphor i like to use is if you're driving a long trip like to florida or somewhere from you know, Indiana, or you're going from North Ohio down to Florida, and you're on a long trip, you're on an interstate, right? And then sometime you get hungry, you get off an exit. And you want to find Chick-fil-A and it's not right there at the exit. So you got to drive into town a little bit. And you drive in and maybe you find it and then you get kind of turned around, you get a little lost, your anxiety level gets up because you're on a plan, you know, and you don't, can't find the highway and you can't get back the interstate that anxiety, that confusion, that loss is kind of what happens when an athlete gets an injury. What I tell athletes is I want you to get off the rest stop. We have a rest area where you get off, you park, you go do what you need to do. You may get a snack or two, or, and then you go right back onto the interstate. You can't get lost. And so the idea is that rest areas are places where you, you can get kind of needs met, but your only route is to back onto that interstate under that path so um and, and we help athletes to find what that is and when i'm working with them help to find what that's going to feel like and uh and then modulate that anxiety we don't want to get rid of butterflies in the stomach we just want them to fly in formation so 
you train yourself how to do that through practicing arousal regulation techniques. And then how about, we'll, we'll kind of wrap up with this one. How about a recall from one of the first things you said, talking about the, the foundational skills that you build on and 13 pages of you know information that you give to your athletes. Can you touch on what some of those foundational skills are for our listeners? So it's something that you know obviously don't have access to you, but maybe they can start working on on their own. Yeah, I kind of talk about it as a chili recipe metaphor. Like if you if your mom makes a certain food, you want you remember it, Colin, because I talked about it with your guys team. It's kind of like a chili recipe, right? Yeah. You, your parents or a family member makes a certain dish that you really love and you ask them to give you the recipe. And so they take a little card, uh, little card like this, and they write the ingredients on it. And then the backside, they write how to make it. And you take it home and you make it the first time with all the ingredients that they put on it and it doesn't taste the same but to me a good mental training plan has goal setting that's a foundational skill because one of your goals is to do mental training with the emphasis on process goals versus outcome goals the process goals are the goals that you control to go in and say, I want to be a first year starter at, you know, at Ohio State, well, you don't control that. But what do you have to do first in order to get that opportunity? Improve your 40 speed, improve your strength. So those are process goals. You need to know where you're going. I don't have a problem with the outcome goal, but focus on the process goals. Goal setting is a foundational skill. The second one is arousal regulation. Learn how to breathe. Learn how to find calm and composure. If I was doing a sports psych lecture, we talk about arousal and performance relationship. The more aroused you get, the more you dial into your performance. And then if you're over aroused, your performance drops off. So you got to know how to control your arousal so those butterflies don't get the best of you, the nerves don't get the best of you. You learn how to control. We teach yourself that through relaxation training, uh, mindfulness exercises, meditation. Find a tool that teaches you that. The third thing is focus and concentration skills. And that's the ability to dial in the moment, to pay attention to what we call the relevant cues. Like the most irrelevant cue is the last play. If you drop the ball, if you miss a shot, it's irrelevant. Once you move to the next play, but if you're hanging on to it, now it's taking up space where you can focus on things that are relevant to the next performance. So knowing how to differentiate relevant and irrelevant task cues and performance cues is where your focus and concentration strategies. And that's where visualization, imagery, mental rehearsal, all are part of that focus and concentration process. So you got goal setting, arousal regulation, focus and concentration skills. And then for me, the fourth kind of a final ingredient is to have mental routines. And that's to have a um, individualized mental routine, pre-game, pre-practice, pre-lift, post-game, post-practice. You know, I sent our players off-season mental training handout. Here are things that are important to do while you're away from the building that'll get you prepared for OTAs when you come in. Now, they have to decide what energy and effort they're gonna put into it. But um, I think those four foundational skills, everything else kind of comes off of that. But if you're not doing those four things, 
I think it's kind of like going in the weight room and expecting to build lower body strength and you're leaving out hamstring exercises. Okay, yeah, your quads are going to be strong and your calves are going to be strong, but you're going to blow your hamstrings out because, and I remember that when I was a, a sophomore in college and kind of free weight training was just kind of being introduced into the level. Um, all of us were trying to set squat records. You know, it was so cool to put weight on your back and, and mm -hmm. do squats and see how heavy you could get, but we never did hamstring stuff. You just, it was just, it was how much you could squat, how much you could bench and you weren't doing complimentary or supplementary lifts. And so going into training camp, I'm sophomore in college and I'm running first team center. And then one day running forties after practice, I pulled both hamstrings. Oof not just pull them. I mean, I felt like someone shot me in the back of the leg when they went, but, and then in hindsight, well, yeah, it makes sense. My quads are really strong, but I had it trained my hamstrings. And, you know, to this day, if I go out and play softball, shit, I'll try to stride. And it's like, I can feel it. It's like, Oh, I got crap there. So you just try to manage it. Well, a good strength program is balance. It's kinesthetic knowledge. It's kin so we get more detailed. Well, mental training gets detailed off of those four fundamental skills. Now that's Chris Carr's belief mm -hmm. of doing this for about 40 years, plus the academic uh, training and the research that I read. So I know books will say different things, but to me, a 13 page mental training manual is the foundation. And uh, that's where you start. Dr. Carr, we so much appreciate your time. Um, there was a crazy amount of information packed into this this hour and now, you know, five minutes of conversation. And usually we would, you know, ask the guests where where they can find you, where they can get a hold of you. Um, but, you know, in your, in your case, like you mentioned, you don't do a ton of marketing. You're not out there a ton. You haven't written your book yet. When you do, right. we'll, we'll pre-order it. Um, <laughs> do you just suggest, Hey, become a professional football player and get drafted by the, you know what I mean? Green Bay Packers. Is there, is, are there resources that people can look up to find some information about you? There is, um, you know, obviously I get, I get questions a lot. That was interesting. Um, the day the Packers. So I started consulting with the team in 2018 and this is why I was still in Indian at St. Vincent. And then after two years in a consulting role, uh, they offered me a uh, full-time contract. And at this stage of my career, I think I was ready to just kind of slow some things down. You know, it'd be crazy. I'd be here for four days, go back to Indy, maybe see eight clients, 10 clients in a day, and then go with the Pacers on a five-day road trip. And it was kind of all over the place. So I, I like the pace. I like the intensity. I love the sport. This is, I mean, I've, I did U.S. skiing. You know, I did that men's alpine ski racing. I did USA diving at the Beijing Olympics, track and field. I mean, golf, I've done, there's not a sport I don't think I've involved with, but this is, this is a sport I love because I, I played and coached it. I mean, I just, I get it. Uh, and I get the culture. So I love doing what I'm doing now. It's a good place for me to be. If a student was like a high school athlete or someone, you need to find out in your community, who are your resources? Um, a good way to check is at the collegiate division one level. If you're in, near a power five school, even some of the FCS schools and D2, D3 programs are identifying people who are kind of their sports psych resources. And a lot of those folks are doing it part-time. So that means they have practice. 
There's also an association of applied sports psychology that has a certification. It's called uh, the Certified Mental Performance Consultant. It's kind of the only thing that's out there. And if you go on their website, you can do a search to find people who meet that certification. But I'm saying be good consumers. Ask about training. You guys are in a training facility and you're in Cleveland. I mean, Cleveland area has some really good colleagues, people I've known for a long time, Jack Lessig. In fact, one of my best colleagues is Dr. Charlie Marr, who's a Vice president has been with the Cleveland Guardians. Now it's weird still saying Guardians, but uh, has been in that organization for almost 30 years. And Charlie is well-published um, clinical psychologist out of Rutgers, started working in baseball years and years ago. Um, you know, there are folks out there that do good work. The U.S. Olympic Committee has a registry of sports psychology providers that they approve. I don't know that they ever post the registry, but um, just be a good facilitator because someone has a website or a page. Um, you know, I I guess I'm the old man get out of my yard kind of perspective on this because I, I grew up trained as a psychologist where, you know, you were there as a confidential resource and your goal was to not be on the big screen. Your goal is to be visible but not when i want to how to be available without being in the way how to be visible without being intrusive and um and i and i've spoken you know i've i've been president of the division of uh sports psychology in the american psychological association i was very honored humbled to receive their uh, bruce ogilvy professional practice award a few years ago um as a colleague once said to me, a, a very respected colleague I have said, what else do you need to do in this field? I mean, you've kind of done everything. You've been to two Olympics, you, you've, you've done the stuff and I still care about the field. And the day that the Packers had a press release, I had over 400 LinkedIn requests. And most of them were solicitations sure. and People don't understand if you're in this discipline and you take a picture next to a trophy that a team and a group of athletes won, that doesn't impress me. I'm more likely to ask you how many points you got in that game. Now, do I believe we all have a role to implement as a strength staff? So in, in the Packers, I work with our director of strength conditioning, our director of sports medicine, our director of player engagement, director of sports nutrition, director of performance psychology. We are an entity that provide the resources for our players. So it's important to, to interact and, and respect each other's domain and discipline. I think we do that really well here. Um, and there's that paradigm, James, you talked about. I think, uh, unfortunately, in, in my field, that's a paradigm that's still evolving. And um, there's I, I hear too many horror stories about people taking advantage of athletes or not representing their training accurately in order for the opportunity to get affiliated with a certain, or as they say, we're the package D. Um, and, and I've always been about doing it the right way. Uh, Cause if you do it the right way, the athlete benefits the most. And um, so, you know, these opportunities, Colin, like when you reached out, I was glad, you know, when Packer said, yeah, talk, because I think you guys have a forum to educate and people may not like the message I share, but that's okay. I've been doing it for 40 years. 
I think I'm in a position to know kind of what this field can be and, and what it can be for our athletes. And our athletes clearly need the resources of mental health providers who have the appropriate training and understand the culture of sport and uh, aren't there to just to hang around the equipment room or get rings or anything like that. So um, I think the idea is do it for the right reasons and, and you can be pretty successful. Dr. Carr's given us plenty of good resources, plenty of good points. If you've been considering hiring or talking to a mental performance coach, uh, I think you should have started yesterday after listening to this conversation. So if you're an athlete with us at, at T3 Performance, you know, we've got our own coach. If you are listening from somewhere else, please go back and, and find the resources that Dr. Carr was talking about. Um, but again, Doc, thanks so much man, for coming on episode 36. This has been awesome. This is one of those you listen to two, three, four, five times and, and learn more every time. Um, if you've been with us this entire time, remember we ask you three things when we wrap up every conversation. Number one, please continue to practice gratitude. Number two, tell the people that you love, you love them, every opportunity that you get. And number three, live this life stimulated. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you all in the next one.